Hello and welcome to Voices from the SBS Summit brought to you by the National Insider Threat Task Force. My name is David Prina and I'm a political scientist with the Threat Lab. Today, Professor Kurt Braddock and I are continuing the conversation we started back in September during the Counter Insider Threat Social and Behavioral Sciences Summit. Hi, Professor Braddock. Have you been since we last talked? Very, very well. There's a lot been going on in the last several months since we talked uh, in the fall. And I think we'll cover a lot of good ground here today, probably bringing up some of what's been going on in the last several months. Perfect. Yeah, been a been very busy time for this uh, this subject area. Always, always. We'll never be out of business, unfortunately. I would happily yeah. dig a hole all day and then people stop hurting each other, but it's never going to stop, I don't think. Yeah, under, under, same here and understood. I hope all of our listeners have watched the recording of your webcast on attitudinal inoculation and preventing radicalization among insiders, which is available on the sbssummit.com. But for those who haven't, uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Yeah, happy to. So most of my work surrounds the application of established communication theory to issues related to violent extremism. So um, I kind of cut my teeth looking at narratives and counter narratives and, and the ways that uh, terrorist narratives can serve radicalization and recruitment goals by terrorist groups and how we can use communication theory to develop counter narratives for the purpose of, um, of de-radicalization and sometimes counter radicalization. Since then, and the work that I did with the SBS Summit relates to what's called um, inoculation theory or attitudinal inoculation. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk a bit about it a little bit later, but um, attitudinal inoculation very generally relates to the development of kinds of messages that help people develop what I like to call psychological antibodies to messages that advocate violence and thereby help prevent them from engaging in violence on their own. Um, I also do quite a bit of work now. Uh, I'm working on a new project where I'm looking at uh, what I call the psychology of subtext and the ways that people interpret different kinds of messages that uh, popular speakers provide that might move them toward violence. So I have my hands in all these different cookie jars, but they all relate to how different kinds of messages are interpreted by audiences who might be vulnerable to radicalization and move them towards violence and how we can use our understanding and use literally decades of knowledge uh, related to communication processes to prevent people from from buying in to the kinds of ideologies that advocate violence and ultimately lead to violence. So in your summit presentation, you talked about the problem of violent radicalization and the prospect that radicalized individuals can be, uh, radicalization can be prevented through inoculation. So let's pick up where we left off and uh, I'd like to ask, so I'm a, I feel like I'm a pretty smart guy, and I think I'd be able to identify or resist someone trying to radicalize me. Um, and I think a lot of people view radicalization the same way, that it's kind of a remote possibility that anyone could be radicalized, and it's only embraced by a few sort of fringe individuals. How vulnerable do you think I or others really are to radicalization? Well, let me start with the first part of that question in that uh, relating to radicalization being a remote possibility. Um, it's true. Terrorism and violent radicalization are low base rate phenomena. Uh, there are literally millions of people who may have or may have beliefs or attitudes that some people might consider extreme, but the likelihood of those people ever engaging in violence is, is pretty low. Um, and that's for the exact reason that you say. Most people are able to recognize when others are trying to persuade them, or um, even if they are persuaded by certain ideas, they tend to not be drawn toward the, the appeal of actual violence or, or supporting violence on behalf of those beliefs or attitudes. 
That said, I think one of the things that's changed in the last few months, like we talked about, as we see more of these indictments come down and more information comes uh, to the fore uh, about events that happened, like what happened on January 6th last year, is that the individuals who are succumbing to violent radicalization, they aren't just on the fringe anymore. They're doctors, they're lawyers, they're people who live next door, they're everyday Americans. So although terrorism tends to be a low base rate phenomenon, what we used to consider um, radicalization or violent radicalization is moving more and more into the mainstream. And we're seeing that more people are vulnerable to it than we originally thought. Um, I think, and I think we'll talk about this a bit more as we move on, people aren't necessarily vulnerable to radicalization in the way that, that people think about persuasion and that they don't just get exposed to messages and decide, okay, that's it, I'm going to engage in violence now. Typically, the people who end up engaging in violence, they're doing so, and they're the receptivity of to of the messages that move them toward violence are because something's missing for them, or there's something amiss in their life they need fulfilled. So there are a lot of different factors that go into somebody becoming what we call radicalized or radicalizing toward violence. So the, all these little ingredients need to be there. But we're finding that these ingredients are there for more individuals and more mainstream individuals than we originally thought. Excellent. So, so to, to sort of sum up, there is some sort of vulnerability for a lot of people, and it doesn't. So, lots of different people from a lot of different strata of of society are are vulnerable in different ways. Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the things that extremists are good at doing, whether through conspiracy narratives or through just more traditional propaganda is identifying the sorts of vulnerabilities that people have and exploiting them in a way where they can generate these different stories about how they are being victimized and the only way that they can they can redress this victimization is to fight back in some way. So we all have different sort of psychological vulnerabilities. Maybe we have social vulnerabilities. We may have economic vulnerabilities. And a lot of the messaging that moves people towards violence exploits these weak points in our psychologies and pushes us towards violence in a way that we might not have expected. Understood. And that, that kind of leads into my second question. So you kind of, you, you kind of tease a little bit about how extremists radicalize their audiences, but so how does that work? What kind of strategies do extremists employ? How do they create their, their powerful messages and, and what makes an effective message for, uh, for an audience? Yeah, and although I do most of my work now on, um, on on the far right in the United States, the way that different kinds of extremist propaganda, what we call radicalizes people toward violence, um, it operates the same way oftentimes in, in many different contexts. Uh, the groups that develop the kinds of propaganda or messaging that moves people towards violence is very, very adept at identifying grievances that people have. Oftentimes, these grievances are actually bound in reality. They are realistically based. They might be economic. They might be social. They might be able to recognize the fears that people have that the world around them is changing, and that's a very real fear for them. So extremists are very good at taking these fears, taking these vulnerabilities, and taking these, these psychological weak spots and weaving them into the kinds of messages that they use to pull people toward those ideologies. So once they have somebody vulnerable uh, to the point where they are willing to listen to what the group is presenting as a way to solve their problems, and this might include 
the use of violence. They're more open to those sorts of kinds of practices. So the, the, the real practice that's used across ideological context is the matching of propaganda to the grievances and vulnerabilities that their target audiences have. Extremist groups are very, very good at doing that. And people who are, um, they have these grievances or they have these vulnerabilities, oftentimes they're more than happy to listen to a solution for the problems that they think they have. You mentioned um, threat as being kind of a threat or danger as being a really important element. Um, is that because just most people respond, most people's kind of knee jerk response to threat is to, is, is violence or is there something else going on there? Yeah, well, this is where, where emotions and propaganda really come into play. I've done a bit of research on um, discrete emotions and how, how emotions affect people psychologically. So um, when somebody's threatened, there's typically a couple of emotional responses to that, the two main ones being anger and fear. And um, if you, you look into, again, a communication theory or psych psychology theory called discrete emotion theory, it talks about these, what we call action tendencies. And those are the ways that people respond to the emotions they feel. When somebody feels scared about something, and in the, the, the case of, let's say, um, political predisposition or, or political comfort, um, somebody may be scared that the, the political makeup of their region or their country is changing. They may be afraid that they won't have the same rights and responsibilities that they had under uh, previous political makeups. So maybe they feel this fear. Um, discrete emotion theory says that the, the there, there are two different ways that people respond to fear. And this is hardwired into our brains that we either run from it or we attack it to remove it. Um, anger, you, as you might expect, has a similar kind of response. So people are angry that some of their goals are being kept from them. And the theory argues that that's where anger comes from, when goals that we value are being, are being kept from us. We strike out at those that are keeping us from achieving our goals. So if an extremist group wants to exploit somebody's anger about the fact that somebody is having economic problems, maybe they can't find employment, these are valued goals these people have. So extremist groups and extremist messaging is very, very good at taking that anger, especially, and pointing it towards a target that the group wants to strike out against and use the vulnerable individual as kind of a proxy for attacking that group, attacking some kind of out group. So fear and anger are just two examples. There are any kind of emotions that people can feel that can be directed towards uh, ideological violence. And these are very, very powerful tools in the extremist messaging tool belt. The good thing is that we can also use positive emotions for uh, the purpose of counter-radicalization as well, which uh, I've written about a bit and um, talk a bit about in my inoculation work. So it sounds like the, there's these kind of hardwired psychological responses that we have, um, which are very strong. And it sounds like inoculation theory is something, it, it sounds all the more important um, for inoculation theory to be something that's done very early on, right? So that people don't have those, those two, you know, fear or uh, fear or flee, I guess is the, the response, right? Um, and try to move past that. Um, yeah. So an inoculation is interesting in that um, I've often been accused when I talk about inoculation is trying to prevent people from having certain beliefs, whatever they are, because I find them distasteful or, or whatever. Um, but that's not the case at all. The idea behind inoculation, um, and if I can describe it in a more detail now for people who don't know, basically inoculation is a psychological analog to actual medical 
vaccination. So when you're vaccinated for like COVID-19 or flu or whatever, what happens is you're injected with a weakened form or a dead form of the virus that your immune system recognizes and develops antibodies to. So when you encounter it in the wild, your body already has the defenses it needs to protect against it. In the 1960s, a guy named William McGuire said, well, maybe we can try this with ideas. What if we expose people to weakened forms of ideas and see whether or not they defend against the ideas when they encounter them in the wild? So uh, over the course of his research agenda and the decades that have, that have come since that, um, we've discovered that it actually does work that way. But the messages need to be delivered. They need to be constructed and delivered in a certain way. And there's two main elements to them. The first, the first thing you must do in inoculation, this is what makes it um, makes it different from other kinds of counter-radicalization messaging, is that you need to elicit feelings of threat in your target audience. And I don't mean threat of like bodily harm. <clears throat> you need to have your audience recognize that the beliefs and attitudes they have are at risk of changing. That's the threat you want to elicit. Because uh, people, especially people in the Western world, Americans, Brits, Aussies, others, um, we really, really don't like it when we think that our beliefs and attitudes can be changed. We really like to think we make our own decisions. And if somebody can change our minds, it really, I mean, for lack of a better term, it pisses us off. It makes us angry. So uh, my research has shown that if you elicit that threat and then provide somebody with counter arguments against the arguments they'll encounter in the real world, a couple of cool things happen. Number one, they experience what's called psychological reactance. And it's difficult to explain what reactance is, but the best way to explain it is to give an example. If you've ever been on a car lot or in a store and a salesperson comes up to you and tries to sell you something, that weird negative feeling you get where you just want them to go away, that's reactance. It's the combination of anger and counter-arguing. And um, I've also found that when you inoculate against extremist propaganda, the source of the target of the message will think that the source of the propaganda is less credible. And both of those reduce somebody's intention to support the group. So this is all, this all hinges on the idea that somebody is inoculated before they encounter these ideas. You prime reactants and you prime reduction in source credibility before they encounter it. That's when inoculation is most effective. And for me, the thing to inoculate against is support for or engagement in violence. I have no interest in trying to police somebody's thought if they have ideas that are, that are different from my own, but I draw the line at the use of violence in support of these kinds of ideas. So for inoculation, if you wanted to do an inoculation message to prevent far-right violence among vulnerable audiences, the first thing you would do is tell those audiences, listen, we know you're not violent. We know that you don't at present have any intention to engage in violence, but there are these groups out there who want to use you to achieve their political goals by making you engage in violence. And more than that, I know you think that you are impervious to persuasion, but people just like you have been persuaded. That elicits that threat. Then you give them kind of weakened arguments the group might give them, and they counter-argue against those when they encounter them in the real world. So that's kind of a, a five-minute uh, crash course in what inoculation theory is and what the research that I've done has shown that it can do in terms of counter-radicalization. Yeah, thank you very much for summing that up. Sort of the mechanism of, of how this works, or, or if this works in, in practice, it would be instead of if, if I'm an uninoculated individual, I get an extremist message, I can have a fight-or-flight response to it. But if I'm inoculated, my, my 
the my range of reactions to it is more you know fight flight or i go wait a minute sounds like this person's trying to manipulate me and that's the kind of response that you're trying to provoke is that correct exactly the whole idea and the reason i like inoculation is because it's not based on the idea of trying to convince somebody of something um, it goes to the target and it says to them, listen, we know you're not violent, but there are these groups out there that we want to warn you about. And here's what they're going to try to do to you. And research has shown, my research has shown, um, regardless of its left wing or right wing propaganda, um, we've tested it. And I say we, I mean uh, the Peril Lab at American University. We've tested it on um, specific right wing uh, ideas like um, race science and, and different kinds of um, uh, male supremacy ideas. What happens is that people have that exact response. They, uh, the, the anger that they feel is no longer in relation to the, the, uh, the fear or the, the ideas that they would, they would lash out against. They get angry at the individuals that try to persuade them. And that's what we want them to do. We want them to be able to think for themselves and to critically analyze any messages they might encounter that would make them do things they wouldn't otherwise do that would A, hurt other people and B, hurt themselves. Um, another one of the reasons I really like inoculation is because it looks at vulnerable audiences, not as kind of a priori um, criminals, but they are victims in themselves when they're exploited by this kinds of messaging. So the way you describe it is exactly right. You want the people to be skeptical of the messages they encounter. So they're less likely to be persuaded by it when they see it. Understood. Yeah. And it sounds, sounds more like you're giving them the tools to recognize when they're being manipulated or, or influenced in some way. And I, I think that's really important. That's exactly right. And that's the way, that's the way I tried to describe inoculation is that it's not that I'm trying to persuade somebody of something. I'm trying to give them the tools to critically analyze messages that they're exposed to. So extremist groups don't exploit their emotions and exploit their grievances in a way that puts them in danger. Uh, so that that's that all sounds very good in practice, um, and certainly like uh, laboratory settings. I'm sure there you can you can get results that that that, um, that support that theory. But for organizations that are that might wonder if their populations are vulnerable to radicalization, what kind of what does inoculation look like? Are are these trainings, briefings, um, a slide deck, sort of so, so to speak? You know, what does that look like in practice? Yeah, so this is we. I've been fooling around with this, and there's different kinds of ways that I've shown or I've found that it's been effective. I have given formal trainings to NGOs in the United States, Europe, and, and Asia, so that those NGOs can engage with their communities and develop inoculation messages on their own. Um, I've engaged with a couple of um, technology firms that I'm. I probably could name, but I'm not going to just in case that who they, they do their own counter radicalization messaging. And some of the metrics that they use have shown that when they develop inoculation messages and they are posted on platforms, that people are less likely to engage with the extremist propaganda on those platforms. So it's been shown in those kind of contexts, too. Um, I've worked with governments who themselves work with community organizations that are that are interested in helping build resilience in their communities against extremist messaging. Um, and to give you to give you one kind of hard, fast example, uh, there is an organization who I know I can't name, but there's an organization in um, in Kyrgyzstan that I worked with about I guess two or three years ago now, where the um, they they were interested in developing. Uh, counter-radicalization messages because um, ISIS groups were trying to recruit from Central Asia and they were interested in, in helping uh, their communities to prevent 
them from going over to uh, Iraq, Syria, or Southeast Asia to help support ISIS. So um, direct engagement with those NGOs and those community organizations, I think, are key. I think there's another route here that I think is starting to pick up a little bit of momentum, and inoculation is only one part of it, and that is the development of media literacy programs in schools. I think that's absolutely critical, not just for counter-radicalization purposes, but kids are exposed to so much disinformation online, and they need to be able to recognize what's real and what's not. So I think if um, if that kind of that kind of curriculum is, is built into uh, elementary and middle school schooling, then I think inoculation would fit in there as well. But it, it fits into a, it fits into several different contexts. But something that's critical with respect to inoculation is that it's most effective when the messages are delivered by individuals who are trusted by the message targets. So NGOs and community organizations, I think, they're they're the key. They're the ones who I think can do the best work with this kind of thing. Understood. So, and so it sounds like inoculation theory isn't just somebody coming, somebody sitting down with somebody having to have a, a talk. It can be, it can be a whole broader range of, of things from, from, you know, counter memes to videos to, like you said, more, um, more engagement, like face-to-face engagement with, um, with stakeholders. Absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned memes, but at the uh, Polarization and Extremist Research Innovation Lab in American, those are some of the things we were actually testing. We, we tested a couple of, um, of kind of like talking head videos, almost like how The Daily Show or, or shows like that have like the video in the corner and they had the speaker. Um, we tested that as an inoculation message against things like memes that are obvious or memes that are subtle, things that are a little subversive, the things that people would find on 4 or 8chan that aren't necessarily direct propaganda, but they're more these little bite-sized morsels. And we're finding that inoculation is effective there as well. So it's interesting that we're kind of stretching the boundaries of, of what inoculation could be used or how it could be used. And we're finding that it is very malleable. We can, we can, we can develop these inoculation messages in ways that appeal to different kinds of audiences because of the tastes that people have now online and it, it's showing to be effective. So um, I'm glad to see that it's being effective in that way. Now it's a matter of identifying where the boundaries are, where does it not work? Why does it not work there? So we're not wasting resources as we develop these messages. Yeah, so that, that's pretty interesting that it's got a wide uh, variety of applicability too. And, and I think the next question too kind of speaks to that, which is, um, it seems like in order to be effective, inoculation has to take place before radicalization. Um, so for those individuals who might be in the process of consuming extremist material, or they're embracing the ideology, or who might be on a path towards radicalization, is inoculation an effective strategy? And, and if not, are there alternative strategies? Now, this is interesting, and this is really kind of cutting-edge research that some people have done. I haven't tested it in the in the realm of extremism, but the inoculation research in the domain of extremism has followed suit from everywhere else, so there's no reason to think this wouldn't as well. Um, there's research just in the last year, and I want to shout out a couple of people who do inoculation work. Um, John Rosenbeek, Josh, Josh Compton, Sander Vandenlinden, they all do a lot of very, very good inoculation work with respect to misinformation, disinformation, and other contexts. Um, and, and a lot of these researchers, what they're looking at now or what they're finding now is that 
even if you inoculate people after they've been exposed to the messages, there is an effect that pulls them back. It's most effective if you get them before they're exposed to the material at all. So they kind of develop those antibodies off the bat. But some of the newest research in this field shows that individuals who are inoculated, even after they're exposed, you can reduce their proclivity for engaging in, for engaging in violence or for being persuaded by any kind of propaganda. Although it is better if you get to them before they see the message whatsoever, which is why I advocate for schools so heavily, because I think if we can teach media literacy more generally, um, we can help these individuals to protect themselves against this kind of messaging before they're even exposed to it. Now, in the in the absence of inoculation, I mean, there there are still several strategies that are that are tested. I mean, counter narrative kinds of content, alternative narrative content is still very popular, I think. Um, the, if my read of the field is correct, it seems that people are more drawn towards using alternative narratives rather than counter narratives these days, which makes sense because it's one thing to just say these people are wrong, but it's another thing to say um, these people may want you to do these things, but here are some stories as to how people redirected their energies. I think that, that's probably a lot more effective. So there are other strategies, but inoculation, the research does seem to show that inoculation can be effective even after people are exposed. That's very interesting too, because it, it kind of suggests that that it's giving, the inoculation gives people an opportunity to re-examine the beliefs, maybe? Is it, you know what, exactly how that how that works, like inoculation works? Yeah, so it, my guess is that because the mechanism of the counter-persuasion after somebody's been exposed, I mean, it's so new that people are still teasing out these details. My guess is exactly what you say, is that people, they think about whether or not that which they've been persuaded by um, were they persuaded by individuals who didn't have their best interests at heart? So they'll, they'll rethink that. Um, it, it, it might be, have something to do, it might be a similar mechanism as to like buyer's remorse. Once somebody buys into an idea and they recognize there's something wrong with it, they'll go back and, and re-examine. But there's something going on there where it, it puts that little seed of doubt in people that maybe what they were persuaded by, they'll go back and rethink um, what it is that they, they, they've been persuaded by. Um, there is a caveat here, which is difficult, and this is new research too, but I mean, even the last three or four years, things like conspiracy theories and, and disinformation, those are especially tricky kinds of narratives to inoculate against because there are typically fail-safes built into those stories that if there's any kind of attempt to counter those stories via inoculation or something else, it just folds into the conspiracy narrative more. So the example that I always use is... Um, there's a really, really good book from, I think it was 1957, Leon Festinger, called When Prophecy Fails. And if uh, if anybody is interested in kind of the QAnon movement or, or anything like that, I would strongly recommend this book because the parallels between the two are, are, are very, very striking. In this book, there was a cult. It was a UFO cult that um, they thought that uh, UFO was going to come and take them all away off to a planet, which I, if I remember right was called Clarion. I might be wrong. Um, and there was going to be a great flood that killed everybody, and they were going to be reset back on the planet. They were going to repopulate the planet. Huzzah. That, that, that was their, that was their uh, conspiracy narrative or their cult narrative. Um, the day that the UFO was supposed to come down and pick them up. They were all, then this is what the whole book is about, like what happens when the prophecy doesn't come true. Um, the, the researchers found that while they're out in the backyard looking, waiting for the UFOs, and of course the UFOs don't come, um, a small contingent of people after the prophecy failed left, of course, to like, okay, well, I guess this was bull. 
But um, a greater number say, well, we must have prayed hard enough so the UFOs didn't come. That's why that happened. We knew that if we prayed hard enough, we would save the world. So there are these fail-safes in the conspiracy narratives that allow them to fold what happened into their conspiracy. So if you look at something like QAnon, that's exactly what happens is um, – they have, they have like the trust the plan and here's when the storm is coming and when the storm doesn't come on a certain date, it must be because of something else that they've already prophesized. So this is all to say that counter messaging against conspiracies is especially tricky because oftentimes the counter messaging itself has already been baked into the conspiracy. So you're almost fulfilling the prophecy they have. So th I think there needs to be more research in that domain to see how you can kind of get in there without fulfilling the prophecy. But as I mentioned, those individuals that I mentioned earlier, uh, Rosenbeek, uh, Vandenland, and Compton, myself, others, we're, we're, we're trying to figure that out, how we can get into those, those conspiracy narratives and undermine them. Yeah, and that actually very well feeds into my next question about it. It seems like there are, yeah, like you said, counter messaging contains uh, element. Counter messaging is used as proof that the original message, extremist message, is is correct, right? <laughs> Which um, it seems like a lot of extremist content also tries to use these kind of inoculation strategies, right? What they want to do is they want to get in the mind of a, of a person and then close the door after it. So they have like strawman arguments. They talk about how others might, might want to change your beliefs. Um, you might want to say how, oh, you know, my, my extreme strategy is correct. These other moderate strategies, if, if people tell you, try to convince you of them, they're trying to manipulate you. Um, and they seem to kind of mirror those mechanisms of, of inoculation. Does that kind of change the approach that you use um, uh, when, when you're dealing with people who, who push those messages? I think so. And this is exactly what I wrote about in my book, um, Weaponized Words, in that every chapter that I wrote about some kind of theory or strategy, I talked about how extremist groups use them and how we can use them. Um, none of these, no communication form or strategy is unique to one side or the other. Both sides can use them in any way they see fit. Um, the, the benefit that, quote, we have, like the good guys, I guess, the ones who are trying to prevent violence, is that oftentimes, I'd say all the time from my own perspective, is that we are delivering message that are meant to protect not just individuals who would be hurt, but the individuals who are persuaded as well. Um, so when somebody is, uses inoculation to, to try to undermine counter-messaging before they encounter it, um, I think the play there is to shoot straight with the person and tell them the kinds of stories about individuals who were inoculated in the past by this extremist group and what came of them or what became of them. Because, I mean, although we're moving into more active kinds of counter-radicalization like inoculation these days, um, some of the earliest and best research on uh, kind of the, what works as a counter-message is drawn from like the work of the 2000s following uh, September 11th. Um, there's a couple of very good books about why people left terrorist groups or why they they abandoned extremist groups. And those stories are still very, very powerful. Um, most people who get involved with this sort of thing become disillusioned very quickly. And what you can do if somebody's inoculated against you, you can say, listen, I know what strategy they used. Here's what they used. Here's how it works. Kind of show them kind of like how the, the cake is made to let them be able to pick the idea apart and then tell them, listen, if you are going to adhere to the ideas that they tried to get to protect, they tried to protect you against the ideas we're talking about. If you stick on this path, here's where 
you may go wrong or here's where some of the disillusionment will come in. And then you can tell the stories of people who've, who've kind of walked that same path. So it is a very tricky balance uh, to try to undermine messages that, that people have already been inoculated against. But um, the truth is we have the realities of engagement in violence on our side. And that being that most people who do these sorts of things, they end up hurt, killed, in jail, and most relevant to the message target, disillusioned with what they did. So, so thank you very much for, for talking about um, extremism with us and, and ways to um, overcome radicalization. Um, unfortunately, today, there seems to be a lot of political sensitivity about extremism and ra radicalization. So I want to know, like, how do you even start that conversation with people without triggering that kind of like negative response or that, that reactance that you, that you want um, inoculation to, to actually do against extremism? Yeah, I think the uh, the first step, and this is this is independent of context. This is just standard. How do you have a conversation with somebody? Is and I think this is where we a lot of the political conversations get lost. Is that you need to find common ground. You need to have a baseline on which you can start your conversation. So the conversation that I think most people would agree with is we don't want people to get hurt. That, I mean, that, that seems like a pretty good baseline. You said, we don't want people to get hurt. We don't want people to get killed. And if somebody says, no, I want to kill people, then you have a bigger problem than counter-messaging on your hands. So if you can come to, to a baseline where you say, okay, we don't want people to be hurt. We don't want people to be killed. How can we protect people from being hurt and killed? Um, okay, so that's where you start the conversation. Then something like inoculation is effective. Because, as I said earlier, I think this is why a lot of NGOs are drawn to it. It assumes innocence on the part of the vulnerable individual rather than kind of de facto guilt. It doesn't go, listen, you're going to be a terrorist. And here's the reason that you're wrong. It goes, listen, people like you have been exploited by these groups in the past, and people like you have been hurt and killed in service of these groups. So here are some of the messages they're going to try to expose you to. And here are some of the negative repercussions that you might encounter. So instead of talking about extremism and radicalization as something that these people necessarily are going necessarily going to happen to them, they're going to become extremists. They're going to become radicals. You talk to them and say, listen, we know you don't want people to be hurt. You don't want people to be killed. Um, here's how this group's going to try to get you to do those things. And then hopefully redirect their energies toward a, a less violent form of political expression. Um, I think a lot of people, and rightly so, and the, because there's a lot of debates surrounding terms like extremism and radicalization, um, because they're so value loaded, who determines who's an extremist and who's a radical. Um, but if, if we talk to individuals who are vulnerable to radicalization in this way, as though we are on their team and we are all on team, don't hurt other people. Um, and you emphasize that, uh, that we don't want to change their beliefs and attitudes. We just want to make sure that you don't hurt people or get hurt yourself. That's where I think the common ground is. I think it needs to be made clear that, that there, there is room for political disagreement, but there's no room for actually hurting other people on behalf of those disagreements. So I think that's where those, those sorts of those conversations can be had. Um, I think that if you can agree to one basic fact that hurt or dead people is bad, um, then you can actually start to have these kinds of conversations where um, individuals are more likely to engage with you than they would be otherwise. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for giving us that kind of like level set of how to approach this. Um, and I know it's it's kind of difficult to talk about 
I, you kind of mentioned this earlier um, of trying to get into the mind of an extremist as someone and, and framing them not as, like you said, the bad guy, but as somebody who receives or might be like, quote unquote, infected by some sort of radical disease. I think that's very important because so much of what's pushed out by extremists is, is horrible, right? Like the, 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 from, from the kinds of goals that they're pursuing to the rhetoric that they use to the, the, the nasty memes and, and, you know, um, and slurs. So it's really hard to have that kind of empathetic response where you see them as a, as a, as a person who's undergoing some kind of um, understandable, but kind of terrible process. And I think having that empathetic part is, is, is difficult, but I, th I think that that's why I kind of like this inoculation approach. That's the difficult part is because you're going to, when, when you engage with these individuals, you're going to be engaging with ideas that you find absolutely disgusting and distasteful. Um, but you need to think about the greater purpose here, and that is to prevent people from being hurt and killed. And if you can tolerate engaging with somebody whose ideas you find distasteful and gross and, and completely in opposition to your own, um, within reason, of course, I mean, there are some ideas that, that are just... I mean, on their face, evil, because they propose violence against whole groups of individuals. Um, but if, if you can if you can tolerate the idea that some individual will have political ideas that are different from your own and recognize that this kind of counter messaging is in the greater service of protecting people from being hurt and killed, um, it becomes much easier to to recognize how this kind of idea should be implemented. Um, and But you're absolutely right in that when you're engaging in messaging back and forth messaging with an organization or with an individual who is from your ideological outgroup it takes a very very careful balance of being empathetic but also trying to convince the person that their outgroup is not worthy of being hurt all right uh professor braddock i wanted to ask was there anything else that we we discussed that you wanted to delve back into were there any questions that we didn't ask that you wanted to to review uh, just just one quick point, which I think is important uh, here in talking about inoculation with respect to to workforce protection, because this is a this is a context that I'm seeing it used more and more or being there's there's more and more interest in it uh, in recent years. Um, my early work on inoculation focused pretty primarily on, you know, terrorist groups develop propaganda, that propaganda gets in front of people and their beliefs and attitudes change in the direction of that propaganda, putting them at greater risk for engaging in violence. Pretty good. Um, there are there's an increasing demand for inoculation strategies and other counter radicalization strategies to help protect workforces because, especially in certain certain fields, because there are some individuals who are more prone to persuasion by these messages than others. And I'll give you an example. Um, one domain that I know there is increased interest in counter radicalization messaging is within. Um, security personnel, um, especially individuals who have combat experience, who have training in weapons and things like that. Um, I think one thing that that's been very surprising and, and um, a little disturbing is that there was a significantly larger portion of ex-police and ex-military on the January 6th, at the January 6th insurrection than are present in the general population. So there's something going on there. Um, I do know that, that those, those fields 
are becoming more interested in, in how they can engage with their workforce in a way that makes them at less risk for engaging with these ideas and may put them at less risk for engaging in violence on behalf of an ideology that, that seeks to exploit them. So I do think it's important to recognize that although I've been talking about inoculation in, in the domain I've used it, I mean, extremism more generally in an academic sphere, um, I do, I'm working with uh, DHS as a DHS grant I'm working on where I'll be testing it in the field. But the, the practical application of inoculation is expanding beyond what I even thought would be possible a couple of years ago. And one of those domains where I think we're going to see more moving forward is in the protection of workforce, especially among those um, populated by individual combat training. So just something to keep an eye on moving forward where inoculation I think is going to be moving. Um, and I think it's critical that it moves in that direction because of what we saw on January 6th. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for giving us uh, a rundown of attitudinal inoculation and preventing violent radicalization. We really very much appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Uh, thank you all for listening. And a big thank you to our speaker, Professor Kurt Brada. As I mentioned at the beginning, uh, listen to Kurt's summit presentation. Please visit sbssummit.com. Also, don't miss out on our new products from the Threat Lab. Um, sign up for our distribution list at dodhra.threatlab.mail.mil. Thank you again, Professor. David, thank you very much. Appreciate it.